Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 91 for the first third of November 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the binary companion of our star, the Sun. This was a listener-requested episode by several people, actually. I normally don't do a broad overview before I get into a single person's claim or topic, but in this case, it's somewhat warranted. I listened to and read about half a dozen different people's claims about the binary sun or binary star idea, and each of them cited a couple of different lines of evidence, and each of them had a different idea of what the binary sun was. None of them actually used basic science or referenced what has been the more scientific idea for a binary companion. So let's do the basic idea first, some of the classic evidence, and then get into a few of the more fringe ideas about what's probably going on in what will probably be a shortish main segment. The idea, at its most basic level, is that our star, the Sun, is one member of a binary star system. The other star is who knows where. This is not as weird as it might sound when you first hear it. Most stars are binary. When I was going through college, the number thrown around was that around 60% of stars are binary. Many binary sun people say that it's closer to 80%. The actual number is very difficult to estimate because it's trying to prove a negative when you say something is not a binary. We may just not be able to see the companion. Think about it this way. You have light on a distant mountaintop. You take out binoculars, and you still see one light. You take out a small telescope, and you still see one light. You could say that to the best of your ability to resolve whatever angle, that it's just one light. But if you were perhaps able to get a more powerful telescope, it might be split into two very close together lights. For that reason with stars, we can definitely say that something is a binary if we do see two stars orbiting each other, but we can't necessarily ever say something is not a binary. By the same token, we have necessary ambiguity with our own star. There are many types of binary companions that we could rule out, but we can never say for certain that there is not some type of binary companion that we A. can't detect, and B. doesn't influence us in some way that we also can't detect. The classically claimed binary companion of our star is known as Nemesis, and it was proposed in 1984 as a, a way to explain what seemed to be periodic mass extinctions on Earth. The star was a red or brown dwarf, so anywhere from about 13 Jupiter masses to half the mass of the Sun. It was also about 1.5 light years away, inside of the Oort cloud, so it would periodically send stuff our direction. The paper was by paleontologists David Raup and Jack Skotsky, who looked at extinction events on Earth over the last 200 million years. They identified 12 mass extinctions with an average between each of about 26 million years. They suggested something astronomical was the cause because we don't know of anything on Earth that should be the cause of something with a set periodicity of tens of millions of years. A possible case was a companion star with the closest approach of that period that would disturb the Oort cloud and send stuff our way. But I should point out that they did not actually suggest this. Here's the closest quote from their paper. 
we may be seeing the effects of a purely biological phenomenon or whether periodic extinctions results from a recurrent events or cycles in the physical environment. If the forcing agent is in the physical environment, does this reflect an earthbound process or something in space? If the latter, are the extraterrestrial influences solar, solar system, or galactic? We favor extraterrestrial causes. End quote. This was picked up by two teams of astronomers in that same year, 1984. One was Whitmire and Jackson, the other was a paper by Davis, Hutt, and Mueller. They independently published the idea that an undetected binary companion star could do this, and this brown dwarf or red dwarf star should have an apparent magnitude of about 7 to 12. Note that Pluto has an apparent magnitude of about 14, meaning that it's around 10 times fainter than the faintest that this star should be. So, it would be in star catalogs, but you would only know by measuring its distance, or its parallax. Except that, since that time, we have measured the parallax of all stars that are that bright, and none have been found to be that close. The other part of this is that, based on the last mass extinction about 11 million years ago, the star would be pretty much as far from Earth as it gets right about now, making it harder to detect, but still, it should be fairly obvious in star catalogs. The timescales may also seem long, but we do know of binary stars that not only have periods of just a few days, but others that have periods, meaning how long it takes the two stars to orbit each other, of several million years. Just because this one has to be around one and a half light years away on a 26 million year long orbit doesn't make it wrong or impossible. Their work was re-examined in a paper from 2010 by Malott and Baumbach, who, based on revised dates for mass extinctions, found that the extinction rate was roughly every 27 million years, and it stretched as far back as 500 million years in time, so roughly 18 different events. What you'll find buried at the end of the Wikipedia entry for this is that Milot and Baumbach actually said that their work was evidence against Nemesis. They suggested that the 27 million year signal was very steady, very periodic. The problem with that is that over the past 500 million years, we've gone around the galaxy twice, and we've had many close passes with other random stars at random times. Those should have perturbed Nemesis' orbit very slightly, so 27 million years should actually be a fluctuating signal if it's a companion star. To quote Malat, it's really too good, it's too sharp and fixed, it's like a clock. Mueller, or possibly Muller, one of the people on the original paper proposing it was a star, disagreed. He said, quote, I would agree with most of what he says, but I think he is overestimating the accuracy of the geologic timescale. You get them in the right order, but it's really difficult to get an actual date, and in light of that uncertainty, I would say the nemesis hypothesis is still alive. End quote. Meanwhile, we have infrared surveys that should also have found this brown dwarf, or red dwarf. The IRAS was in the mid-1980s. Go back to episode 54 for more on that. It found nothing. There was the two-mass survey in 1997 through 2001. That also turned up nothing nemesis-wise. Then there was the WISE mission that released its final catalog in March 2012. 
it was capable of finding a 150 Kelvin brown dwarf object out to 10 light years. This is cooler than all known brown dwarfs should be. And yet, nothing. In light of these surveys, most astronomers say pretty much no. Nemesis does not exist. When I originally wrote my blog post about this in July 2010, I noted that it would be a fallacy to claim that this absence of evidence is evidence of absence, at least at the time before the WISE survey came out. With the WISE survey now showing absolutely nothing, my last sentence in that section applies. If these surveys come up empty-handed, then it becomes much less likely that the star is out there, and a different mechanism will need to be proposed. Personally, I think that we're at that point, and that now you enter into the realm where you require special pleading in order to keep Nemesis alive, or just making stuff up and ignoring other science, which is what many people do. For example, Walter Cruttenden runs the Binary Research Institute. Other than Zechariah Sitchin, the Binary Research Institute, or BRI, and their work is cited by most binary star... Uh, enthusiasts. Cruttenden was on, that's right, Coast to Coast AM many times. On Coast, in every appearance, Cruttenden's key piece of evidence was precession. Jason Martell, a fan of the binary star idea and of Cruttenden's work at the Binary Research Institute, also talked a lot about precession. The idea advanced by both of them is a little bit complicated and has a lot of wrong information mixed in with some new age stuff, so Let's start out with what precession really is first. If you take a toy top, or if you're Jewish, a dreidel, and you spin it, it probably won't spin perfectly upright. The axis about which it spins will be tilted, and that direction that the spin axis is tilted will tend to rotate around, pointing in a different location over time. So the top has two motions. It spins on its axis, and the direction of that axis slowly rotates. While the top is spinning, if you were now to, say, move it around another object, then you would have all three motions of a normal planet, or at least the main motions of a normal planet like Earth. You'd have the spin about its axis being the day, you'd have the movement about the center object being the year, and you would have the movement of that axis, the direction in which it points moving, that would be precession. That's why the North Star today wasn't the North Star thousands of years ago. Or, for those who follow astrology, that's why we precess through different astrological ages. Earth spins on its axis in one day, it orbits the Sun in one year, and it precesses once every 25,771.4 to 25,771.6 years, depending upon what paper you read. We know that Earth's current rate of precession is that number, and we know this to pretty high precision, but, you know, that's uncertainty at the sixth significant figure. That's brighter than we know gravity right now. But we also know that it's not constant, and that's because of what causes precession. In fact, there's an equation that we can use to predict what it was and what it will be on the very short term, as in this equation only applies for a few decades. You can't extrapolate it out several thousand years. The reason that you can't use it that long is because it becomes somewhat chaotic, and that's because of what causes precession, and it's here that we sort of have to break away from the top analogy. 
Earth is not a perfect sphere. I've talked occasionally about how it bulges at the equator. But not only that, it's slightly pear-shaped, where there's a little bit bigger mass, a little bit more in the northern hemisphere than in the southern. The study of Earth's shape is the study of its geoid. Because we're not a perfect sphere, and we're not even a perfect ellipsoid, various objects in the solar system can pull very slightly on positive geoid anomalies. Those are the areas where there's a little bit bigger, a little bit more mass in the other positions. In fact, it was the formulator of gravity himself, Sir Isaac Newton, who was the first to figure out what causes precession back many centuries ago. The objects that are most responsible for pulling on Earth are the moon and the sun, with the sun being by far the main component. To understand how, remember that Earth primarily bulges at the equator. The side closest to the sun is pulled on the hardest, while the side farthest away gets pulled on a little bit less. That's why we get tides. But not only does the side closest to the sun get pulled on the hardest, it's where there's a little extra mass, so mostly around the equator. But because our axis is tilted relative to the sun every single moment in our orbit except during equinoxes, then the sun effectively has a gravitational handle upon which it can pull to apply a little bit of torque to Earth. Torque is basically, um, it's a force in a twisting or turning direction. So like when you're screwing in a screw with a screwdriver, that is applying a torque to the screw. The net result of this constant, very, very slight torquing is a very slow precession. In reality, all objects in the solar system have this effect on us, and we have it on them. But by far, the biggest is the Sun, then the Moon, then Jupiter. And this would not happen if Earth were a perfect sphere. But it gets even more complicated, and that's why the precession rate changes. Earth's continents move around. The relative positions of the Sun, the Moon, and the other planets move around. All of these mean that while the cause of precession is pretty darn well explained by all of these gravitational interactions, the rate can and does change very, very slightly over time. With that in mind, and keeping in mind that it's a very, very slow motion, right now, again, it's about 25,771 years to complete one cycle, it's very difficult to measure, especially for ancient cultures. Glancing through my favorite source that I don't let my students use, the ancient Greeks estimated precession at around 36,000 years. There's some conflicting evidence that the Egyptians may or may not have known about precession, and the same goes with the Maya. The Indians may have known about it by the 12th century, that's the Indians as in the Asian Indians, and they estimated it at about 25,461 years. That's pretty darn good. Chinese astronomers estimated it as taking about 18,000 years based on a 4th century writing, while medieval Islamic astronomers calculated it as taking about 25,412 years. So the point of this is we had estimates of precession. Many ancient cultures that knew about science, that had some basic form of science, were also able to estimate it, but they estimated it all over the board, anywhere from 18,000 to 36,000 years. But that's still fairly good in the sense that they knew it was tens of thousands of years. What does this all have to do with a binary star, you might ask? Well, I'm glad that you might have. 
Jason Martell, using work by Walter Cruttenden, claims that precession is speeding up, it's changing, and that we don't know what causes it in the first place, he's wrong about that, therefore it's a binary star companion that's tugging on us. It's an argument from ignorance based on an argument from misunderstanding of science and error bars. In fact, this is pretty much the same exact thing that I talked about in episode 81 on the speed of light changing. It's a lot of data mining. If you go to the Binary Research Institute's website, they have a table showing numerous values for precession over the last century plus the ancient Greeks. And when you look at the table, the period is getting shorter, meaning that precession is getting faster. In his interview, Jason Martell added a number to that, claiming that the ancient Oriental, and that's a quote, astronomers, claimed that precession took about 24,000 years. I'm not sure where he got that because I found 18,000 years. But through some odd reasoning, Martel claimed that it was a period of 24,000 years in the past, and now we're taught incorrectly that it's 26,000 years, but the BRI teaches it's actually about 24,000 years again right now, which I couldn't really find on their website directly. Regardless, Martel seems to claim that the historic data show that precession is taking more time, and that it's due to a binary companion. Meanwhile, Cruttenden seems to argue on his website that precession is taking less time, and that it's due to a binary companion. So far as I can tell, both of them seem to ignore the fact that this binary companion would have been exerting somewhat comparable gravity as the Sun in order to affect Earth's precession by that much. They also, as I said, are sort of ignoring error bars and uncertainty in science. These were people trying to do this work hundreds of years ago. They got fairly good for the time, but it's going to have a big error bar attached to it. Ignoring those error bars and only selecting the data that actually shows their changing precession rate as opposed to it sort of being all over the place in terms of estimates is it's kind of data mining. And it's, as I said, exactly what I talked about with the speed of light changing in episode 81. Now, as a gratuitous aside, Martel then uses this to go on to ideas about the Anunnaki aliens of Zachariah Sitchin, them giving us the hexadecimal system, which is why 24,000 years is important, going on and on and on and on about ancient aliens and various other things. To me, it really seemed more that the binary star and precession was just his plot device to get to the ancient aliens' stuff. As for the New Age part, Jason was big on the day-night cycle affecting us, the yearly cycle affecting us, and therefore the processional cycle affects us by taking us through and away from golden ages and various other metaphysical things. But as I said, that's somewhat gratuitous to this episode on binary star evidence. It just sort of adds a little bit of extra flavor, like a, you know, a dash of coconut on top, or if you hate coconut like me, maybe a dash of chocolate sprinkles or whipped cream. Anyway, I mentioned towards the beginning that everyone except the actual astronomers in the peer-reviewed literature have a different model for their star. A guest going by the acronym LUCAS claimed that it was on a 3,600-year orbit. I'll refer you to episode 23 for why that isn't possible. Jason Martell seemed in some places to say that it was a 24,000-year orbit, but mostly he said that it was on a 3,600-year orbit. Either of these would mean that it's much, much closer than the Nemesis researchers put it, meaning that it's even more likely that it would have been found, and the fact that it hasn't been found makes it even 
less likely that it's real. As I've discussed in episodes 23 and 71, that's actually about as close to impossible as you can get in science, given the lack of observations and the stability of the outer planets and the asteroid belt. In a 2008 interview, Walter Cruttenden estimated that the object is a brown dwarf star. It's outside the solar system, and it's about 600 to 900 astronomical units, that's the Sun-Earth distance, away from us. This would actually put it inside the solar system, so maybe he was just talking about outside of the, the planet's orbits. Anyway, that's about 0.0095 light-years away. Again, much, much closer than the Nemesis star, and it would have a period somewhere about 21,000 years, and again, we would have seen it. Though, another idea that he had was that maybe it's a black hole, in which case we would still have seen its gravitational effects, especially if it's a 4-6 to six solar mass black hole, which is the range that he suggested. Meanwhile, Barry Warmkessel, which George Norrie kept pronouncing as Jerry Wormcastle, relied on Tom Van Flanderen's ideas, that's episodes 29 through 30, Zachariah Sitchin's ideas, that's episode 23, and especially Helena, a.k.a. Madame Blavatsky, for his idea on the binary sun. He decided that it was a magnitude 21 to 22 object, which is something like 10,000 times fainter than the scientists got for a red dwarf nemesis star. Conveniently, he thinks that this object, which he calls Vulcan, is on a 4,969-year orbit. That number comes from Madame Lavatsky. I say this is uh, somewhat convenient, because that's just about the year length that Andy Lloyd, back in episode 71, said that his Planet X was. When I did the math in that episode for a brown dwarf, I calculated that the apparent magnitude for the object should be somewhere around plus 3. That's about as bright as the faintest stars visible from a normal-sized city to the unaided eye. So again, we would have seen it. I apologize to those listeners who requested the episode and may have thought that I came off as somewhat flippant towards uh, the last 10 minutes or so. I think the reason is that I've really covered most of this material before. The various claims by most people for the actual object itself are, they're almost identical to the claims for Planet X, which I've already done 8 episodes on so far. This one does have a little bit of new stuff about it. One is the idea of precession changing due to a planet or a, a binary star and its gravitational tugs, but it ignores gravitational effects that we should be able to see, but we don't see, on the outer planets. It also ignores the observational data that any real, or at least any known type of stellar or star-type object that's been proposed should be visible to infrared surveys of the sky. This not only dooms the binary star ideas proposed by the people who make it on coast to coast, but it also casts serious doubt on those ideas advocated by actual scientists from the 1980s and more recently revised. That's perhaps one of the more intriguing aspects of this story as I come sort of full circle in my wrap-up. This was an idea advocated for some time by mainstream scientists based on an observed phenomenon. And it's not out of the realm of possibility, or at least it wasn't at that time. And it was a possible, real solution to an observed set of data, which is still somewhat unknown or unexplained. 
The problem is that, like any real science, if you propose a hypothesis to explain the data, then you have to abide by the results when that hypothesis is tested. And when we do several all-sky surveys, by this point at least three, that would have been able to observe the proposed object, and we don't see it, then you have to admit that your hypothesis has been falsified, and it's back to the drawing board. But with that in mind, this is also one of those cases where it's very difficult to prove a negative. Yeah, the ideas tossed around by Varmkessel, Martel, Cruttenden, Lucas, and others are pretty much falsified based on absolutely no data to back up their ideas, or the only data coming from data mining, cherry picking, and ignoring some basic facts, but it's possible that there's a binary star companion to our sun, maybe it's you know five light years away. It could barely be gravitationally bound, and it's hard to see that it could still be paired after the last 5 billion years and 20 times around the galaxy, but it's it's possible. Maybe somehow the wise all-sky survey somehow missed it. Somehow. But at the same time, a companion star a few light years away doesn't have the right orbital period to create comet swarms to cause mass extinctions, and so you're no longer solving a problem. You're just sort of creating a solution to one that doesn't exist. Also, at the same time, you're stepping into the realm of inordinate special pleading to make a case for why we haven't yet observed it. In terms of feedback, uh, related to last episode's topic on Billy Meyer and the potential foreknowledge of information about Jupiter and Saturn, as expected, and as known by anyone who might have ventured onto the blog to peruse through the comments, there was a lot. Um, Mostly, it boiled down to, as I predicted, moving the goalpost to claim just that, okay, maybe this stuff was out there, but Meyer just had no way to access it. There was also pointing out that Meyer didn't make the claims that he knew this ahead of time. My point was that I never said he did, but that other people do, and other people use that to say that Meyer's case is authentic. Another thing that came up in the comments was people were confusing terms, again. And of course, there were claims of censorship, and I really need to start following my own rules and not start to reply when I say I'm not going to reply. There was also a lot of, uh, towards the end at least, claiming that the translations were wrong, in the sense that, okay, maybe the word crater, as in the German K-R-A-T-E-R, could mean volcanic or impact crater, and that it's ambiguous, and so when Io was found to actually have volcanic craters, that counts, because the impact craters are buried, which also counts, but I would say... Okay, if you're going to start to claim that, then that makes it way too vague. At a basic level, I think the basic point still stands, is that the claim that this shows that this information was only first known by Meyer is wrong, and that you can't claim that this and these types of claims are ironclad evidence that Meyer knew this stuff before anybody else. He didn't. As another piece of feedback related to an older episode, episode 86, that's the Was Mars Murdered episode, just today I was contacted by Dr. John E. Brandenburg, the man behind claiming that Mars was murdered. He took issues with some of my points, as one might expect. 
I'm actually having a little bit of an ongoing conversation with him, and this is more of a notification that'll let you know what happens from our back and forth, probably next episode. As a bit of feedback, uh, another bit of feedback, I was trolling through the iTunes comments and found the lowest rated one back from December 5th, 2012. I'm not quite sure how I missed it. The comment, or the review, is by jmoney342754, and this person, as I said, only gave it one star. They wrote, quote, Just because a comet has a period of a million years does not mean that it's old. If you shot a theoretical comet in a straight line, wouldn't that be an infinite period? Also funny, you accuse YECs, that's Young Earth Creationists, of hyping things to sell products. Many of them have to sell things now since they were fired from their jobs by the evolution Gestapo. Us. In the beginning, God created. Your crowd. In the beginning, Big Bang. Soup. Rocks. Long time. I think it takes a lot more faith to believe all that. You also believe, all in caps, there's an Oort cloud without proof. You're a man of faith. End quote. If this person had actually taken the time to write to me personally, I might have responded. If so, this would have been along the lines of how I would have responded, though perhaps a little bit more politely. First, I never said that it was because a comet has a period of a million years that it means that it's old. I said that it's because we still have comets, and we know that there is a steady supply of them, at least in the Kuiper Belt, that the comet's existence is not proof we live in a young universe, or at least a young solar system. Second, I don't think I've ever accused creationists of hyping products. In fact, very few, I think, do, other than their books or DVDs, which have a very limited market. Except in the South. No offense to Southerners. Uh, Third, it's a reductio ad absurdum fallacy, the way you presented your crowd's idea versus our crowd on how the universe was developed. If you actually took the time to understand the science, it's that things follow naturally from basic principles and does not require an active hand of God, so to speak. At most, perhaps a passive one to set things in motion. Fourth, for the Oort cloud, there are two points to make. First is that there is no such thing as proof in science. There's proof in math, and that's about it. There is evidence, and there are observations. Second, we do have observations of long-period comets and we have a strong theoretical backing for why the Oort cloud should exist. Creationists said before 1995 that there was no evidence for the Kuiper belt. We found the first Kuiper belt object in 1995, and now you don't hear that argument anymore. The Oort cloud is beyond our technical ability to detect now, but if we get to the point where we do have the technology to observe it, and we still don't see it, then our models have to be revised. Meanwhile, if we do find it, then the role of your god of the gaps just grew even smaller. Sincerely, Stuart. By way of announcements, next episode is going to be about the Pioneer Anomaly. So anyone, if you have a puzzler idea for that, please send it in. Also, don't forget to contact me if you are good at making up a 1-5 to minute story about any topic related to anything discussed on the podcast so far, or related Or if you think you could just make saying that the show is wonderful and fabulous and you've learned so much, if you can make that sort of sound interesting, go ahead and contact me. If you do, you could get a spot on the 100th episode non-holiday spectacular, semi-slated for February of 2014.
Alright, I was told that my southern accent last time sucked, so we'll just do my normal one. That wraps up this topic for the 91st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little or a lot at the same time. For more information about the podcast, you can of course visit the website, podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can leave comments pretty much anywhere that I write about the podcast, like on the website, on the blog, on the Facebook page, tweet me, all that kind of stuff. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and in about five hours I'm going to start going through some of that feedback because I have a half hour to kill. If you have suggestions for topics, also feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and lots of random people on the internet. I mean, I'm sure some of you are on some forums somewhere and they have a miscellaneous section post about the podcast. 